Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. The other night I was working on typing up the synopsis for today's episode, and, uh, I had a typo that ended up cracking me up a little bit. I was trying to type Daredevil, because, spoiler, Daredevil's in the issue we cover today. And what I ended up typing was Dave Devil. And I kind of like the idea of there being a hero named Dave Devil. Like, maybe he got bitten by a radioactive Dave, and now he has the proportional strength and powers of a guy named Dave. I can also kind of see Matt Murdock trying to use Dave Devil as an excuse. Like, somebody overhears him saying, like, hey, I'm Daredevil, you know, because Matt Murdock is super shitty at maintaining his secret identity. And when he gets called on it, he's like, no, 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 I said I was Dave Devil. And the person would probably be like, that's not a thing. And he'd be like, you're not a thing. And then he'd go back to pretending to be his own fictional identical twin brother, Mike Murdock. See, I feel like the key to maintaining a secret identity probably isn't as much making sure nobody can figure out who you are as it is just being so goddamn exhausting that people don't want to bring it up anymore. Anyway, before we get into today's show, I did want to mention I was recently the guest on a really fun podcast. A friend of the show, Rick Heineken, hosts a program called Monday Movie Muckabout, and uh, I was on the episode that came out this Monday and talked about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with Rick, and it was a nice time. So if you're not exhausted with hearing my voice, when you're finished listening to this show, maybe go check that out. And now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Mark Paglia. Whose astral projection this is, I think I know. His sanctum's in Greenwich Village, though. He probably sees me stopping here, thanks to the eye of Agamotto. My friend the Hulk must think it rash, to stop when there are things to smash, villains of our own to fight, instead of cleaning up strangers' trash. Hulk says, Nay more, you're on your own, and with a leap off he has flown. Not wanting more of Steve's bullshit, he leaves me standing here alone. These team-ups often go amiss, but I am far from Atlantis, and need to give a synopsis, and need to give a synopsis. Thanks, Mark. Funny story, in eighth grade, I was sent to the principal's office because I kept suggesting to my English teacher that we were overanalyzing a Robert Frost poem. I guess funny story might be a bit of an overstatement. Anyway, Defenders number 90, December 1980. Mind over Mandrill. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inked by Pablo Marcos. Lettered by Diana Albers. Colored by George Russos. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Hellcat. Valkyrie. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk. Doctor Strange. A little bit. And... Dave Devil. I mean, Daredevil. Previously in the Defenders. 
look, a lot of stuff happened. The gang moved to suburban New Jersey because Hellcat's manipulative mom died and left her a house. Nighthawk is being prosecuted for gross financial malfeasance, and the government just seized his apartment. An incredibly problematic villain named The Mandrill, who dresses like Doctor Strange, looks like a baboon, has a fucked up racist origin story, and the misogynist power to control women with his pheromones has sworn vengeance on the Defenders, and had his army of brainwashed women, which he calls Femforce, kidnap Daredevil, whose alter ego Matt Murdock was working as one of Nighthawk's lawyers, and throw him in a bank vault. And I get that I should probably tell you about all that stuff. But I'm not going to. Because in addition to all that shit, Last Issue had the single greatest event in comic book history. And I'm not ready to move on from it yet. The Hulk went grocery shopping and bought 148 cans of beans. Hooray! Gadzooks! Why did the Hulk buy so many beans? What did the Green Goliath do with this baked bean bounty? And are there any leftovers? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so because, and I quote, Hulk loves beans, beans are good. Hooray! He made the rest of the Defenders eat a huge meal consisting entirely of beans. Hooray! And yes, lots. Hooray! From his secret mansion in an undisclosed Central American country, Mandrill orders Femforce to prepare his private jet for departure. He's heading to America to confront the defenders face to baboon face. His being the baboon face. On the plane ride, he delivers an exposition dump explaining his powers. He controls women with his mutant pheromones. And the reason for his enmity with the defenders. They thwarted one of his schemes. He also gives a version of his origin, which leaves out most of the overt racism. Hmm. Trying to fix a racist backstory by pretending the racist part never happened? Who does Mandrill think he is? America? Zing. Meanwhile, in the idyllic yet strangely crime-ridden suburban town of Montclair, New Jersey, Patsy Walker, Valkyrie, and Bruce Banner begin their day. Their badass housekeeper, Dolly Donahue, informs them that Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, has already left to go to Manhattan for his court date. The gang feels kind of bad because they told Kyle they would go with him for moral support, and instead they all slept in. I mean, they don't feel bad enough that they're willing to skip breakfast to try to get to the trial in time, but they feel kind of bad nonetheless. Dolly offers to fix them something, but reminds them that all they have to eat is about a hundred cans of beans. Hooray! Valkyrie and Bruce resign themselves to a baked bean breakfast, but Patsy's like, yeah, or, and hear me out here, we could buy ourselves food with our money. Val and Bruce reckon that this plan is just so crazy that it might work. So Dolly drives them to a nearby White Castle for a hamburger breakfast on their way to the courthouse. Hooray! As the gang gorges themselves on tiny perforated burgers laden with diced onions, in a nearby bank bearing the strangely gender-specific name, the Women's Bank of Savings, Daredevil struggles to free himself from the vault that Mandrill's minions locked him in. Turns out that when he isn't busy lawyering, superheroing, and impersonating his fictional ne'er-do-well identical twin brother Mike Murdock, Matt Murdock has taken the time to become an expert safecracker. Good for him! Unfortunately, these hard-earned skills are as useless as they are hastily retconned into existence, because the safe door is on a time lock. 
bummer. Unfazed by this bit of bad luck, the scarlet-clad swashbuckling superhero scans the interior of the vault and manages to locate an air vent. It's a little too small to squeeze through, but Matt manages to use his ridiculously versatile little billy club thingy to shoot a grappling hook into an adjacent room. By straining both his super senses and the reader's credulity to their very limits, he's able to fish the handset off the telephone and dial the operator. Neat. Matt yells at the operator through the air vent and asks to be connected to the courtroom where Kyle's trial is currently underway. As Daredevil does his best to reach out and touch someone, Bruce and Valkyrie stop by Stephen Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious to, respectively, borrow a purple suit and retrieve their flying horse. Man, given how well Val has taken care of Aragorn lately, and Bruce Banner slash the Hulk's proclivity for creating unintentional purple jorts, seems like purple suits and pegasuses are not the sort of things these two should be entrusted with. Hellcat, meanwhile, is intent on regaining a personal item from a different location. She busts into Kyle's not-so-civilly-forfeited penthouse apartment to pick up a garment that she would rather not fall into the government's hands. Her Shadow Cloak. Hooray! The Shadow Cloak is a magic prehensile Dracula cape she snaked off a murder demon a while back. It lets the wearer teleport and retrieve any weapon they can think of from the pocket dimension it grants them access to. It also just generally looks badass. Patsy absentmindedly pulls a dagger from the cloak's folds and stuffs it into her belt. Turns out, Patsy has armed herself just in time, because before she gets more of a chance to take her accessories out for a test drive, she's ambushed by several members of Mandrill's Femforce, who have been staking out the apartment waiting to see if a member of the Defenders would show up. Patsy handily repels the first wave of attackers, but a second group of women is close behind them, one of whom bears a device that looks a lot like one of those Ghostbuster proton packs. Hellcat assumes that the device is a weapon and flings her new dagger at it. Uh-oh. You know that old saying about assumptions, Patsy? When you assume, you sometimes puncture the side of a container that's filled with mutant baboon pheromones, which have a mesmeric effect on women and allow the mandrill to hypnotize you. What? That's not an old saying? Well, maybe it should be, because that's what happens. Patsy is overwhelmed by the magic ape stink and Femforce subdues the surprise superhero while they wait for the weaponized aroma to take control of her. Meanwhile, at the courthouse, Kyle's trial has gotten underway. I guess Valkyrie and Bruce weren't running too late, because they arrive as the prosecution is still making its opening statement. The state's attorney, a Mr. Haverhill, reads the charges against Kyle and a partial list of his criminal history. Val is aghast that someone might speak ill of Nighthawk. Really, Val? I mean... You've met the guy, haven't you? The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger voices her objection, so the judge yells at her. As inappropriate as Val's outburst might have been, it at least shows that she was paying attention to the court proceedings, which is more than can be said of Kyle's lawyer, Milton Rosenblum. Milt keeps getting distracted and has to be reminded by the judge that it's his turn to talk. When he finally starts to make his opening statement, he's interrupted by a court officer who informs him that he has a phone call from his co-counsel, Matt Murdock. The judge grants him a brief recess so that he can take the call. A few minutes later, Milt returns to the defense table and is like, Man, Kyle, that was a weird phone call. Matt Murdock wanted me to tell you that Daredevil is trapped in the vault of the plausibly named Women's Bank of Savings. Wonder how Matt would know that which means that in addition to not really understanding how court works, 
Kyle's high-priced lawyer is also one of the very few people in the Marvel Universe who doesn't know that Matt Murdock is Daredevil. wonder if he knows that Kyle's Nighthawk. I mean, it's a huge part of this case, which the prosecuting attorney has just discussed at length, and Kyle is keeping his Nighthawk suit in the trunk of Milt's car, but still, you gotta wonder. Kyle excuses himself from the courtroom, changes into his fancy bird suit, and takes off to rescue his horn-headed pal. This probably isn't going to reflect well on his case. No sooner has the affluent avian aficionado absconded than Hellcat kicks in the door of the courthouse and leads Mandrill and a group of his Femme Force warriors into the building. Mandrill starts sweating as hard as he can, and within minutes, every woman in attendance, including Valkyrie and the judge, have fallen under the Simeon Svengali's sway. Acting on Mandrill's orders, the enthralled judge orders her bailiffs to take Bruce Banner, who had been fruitlessly trying to snap Valkyrie out of her days, into custody. This goes about as well as you might expect. Bruce hulks the fuck out and starts going on a rampage. Meanwhile, a few blocks away, Nighthawk uses his shoulder-mounted laser blasters to bust Daredevil out of the bank vault. Which is cool and all, but he doesn't make a single quip about making a withdrawal. Which seems like it should be grounds for expulsion from any respectable superhero union right there. I mean, you gotta have some standards. Luckily for the billionaire do well bird enthusiast, Daredevil is so grateful for the rescue that he's willing to overlook this faux pas. The bank guards, however, are less forgiving. They tend to frown on people lasering through their vault, regardless of how outlandish their attire may or may not be. They draw their weapons and order Daredevil and Nighthawk to surrender. Kyle's like, What? I'm not a bank robber. I mean, anymore. But rather than stick around and explain their situation, he decides to blast through the ceiling and fly back to the courthouse before he misses any more of his trial. Good call, Kyle. I'm sure if he just explains to the judge that he just had to pop out real quick to break into a bank, she'll understand. When they arrive at their destination, the two heroes find that during Nighthawk's brief departure, everything has gone all higgledy-piggledy. The Hulk is on the roof mixing it up with Mandrill's forces, forces which now include Hellcat and Valkyrie. Daredevil and Nighthawk leap into the fray, and everybody fights everybody. Mandrill senses that the tide is about to turn in favor of his opposition, and uses the confusion of the battle to make his escape. Daredevil goes after him, but is briefly waylaid by a confused Hulk who is momentarily unsure whose side the crimson-clad crime fighter is on. By the time the Emerald Avenger recognizes Daredevil as at least his temporary ally, it's too late. The Defender's ape-appearanced adversary has hailed a cab and is long gone. Bummer. While Daredevil tries to pick up the trail of the perfidious primate, Nighthawk struggles to subdue Hellcat, and Hulk mixes it up with Valkyrie. Hellcat adroitly manipulates her shadow cloak to hold her erstwhile non-teammate at bay, until Kyle suddenly remembers that the last time his pals had fallen under Mandrill's influence, he was able to free them by giving them an electrical shock. So he grabs one of Patsy's metal claws and jams it into a fallen electrical transformer. What the fuck, Kyle? It doesn't seem like overkill to you? Somehow, Patsy not only survives this electrocution, but it also snaps her out of Mandrill's control. So, hooray, I guess, but still. Damn it, Kyle! The Hulk manages to deflect the majority of Valkyrie's attacks, but is less able to dismiss the harsh words the hypnotized hero launches at her former friend. 
In response to a particularly stinging barb, the jade giant swats at his azier opponent and sends her sprawling across the rooftop. Before Kyle gets a chance to toss her on the third rail or something, Valkyrie jumps on her flying horse and takes to the sky. A newly unhypnotized Hellcat tries to chase after her friend, but to no avail. The addled Asgardian Amazon and her winged steed are beyond her reach. In the courtroom below, Milton Rosenblum is like, Now, I know my client fled the trial, but it was for a good reason. He had to break into a bank vault. Can he go free now? Please? The judge is like, Wow. Okay, so one, no, absolutely not. And B, fuck you, Milt. You really suck at your job. Now, will the court stenographer please read back the part where I said, fuck you, Milt, so that I can sustain myself? The stenographer is like, okay, let's see here. Okay, fuck you, Milt. The judge bangs her gavel and is like, sustained. Okay, she doesn't technically do all that, but that's her general tone. To be continued. I would totally do shit like that if I was a judge. That's probably why I was never appointed to the bench. Well, that and my almost complete ignorance of the law. Wow, I hope that is their excuse for not making me a judge, because I've always heard that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So, I'll be here waiting for my fancy robe and gavel, thank you very much. Sustained. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's a nice day. I'm looking out the window, and there's some sun shining, and it's not raining. It's nice. How about you? How are you going? I'm doing pretty good. I'm a little bit wary of the power that I think we might be wielding. Um, explain? Well. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sea shanties have suddenly gotten very popular, and I wonder if maybe we're behind that? Like, we started talking about sea shanties with Get the Squid Drunk, like, what, like, three or four weeks ago now? Weeks ago, yeah. And now sea shanties are suddenly all what TikTok is about. Hmm. I mean, I know we are influencers, but I don't think we're on TikTok, so that's amazing. Yeah, our our reach is spreading. So, bearing that in mind, if you could more intentionally wield our power to popularize or repopularize a pop culture trend, what what do you think it should be? Gosh, I'm I wasn't prepared for that question. I don't know. I mean, with great power comes great responsibility and Apparently we have great power, so it does seem like we should try to be more intentional with it. Is there a trend you think we should intentionally try to popularize? I don't know. I might be okay with bringing pesto back. It's funny. I was thinking uh, sun-dried tomatoes, so we have similar thoughts. We have an accord. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I think that was the one thing the 90s got really right, was just putting sun-dried tomatoes in every goddamn thing. They're delicious. Stuff was everywhere. Yeah, and pesto too. I think that's the right way to go. The other thing I was maybe considering would be like that 
particular brand of old school rap where every line ends with the person sounding pleased and surprised that they thought of a rhyme. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you're saying. That's a happy attitude. Sure. Yeah, okay. Sun-dried tomatoes, pesto, and uh, Curtis Blow. Okay, internet, get on it. Nice. Well, now that we've dispensed with our huge responsibility as the media influencers we apparently are, uh, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, I think we should. Corey, what did you think of Defenders number 90? You know, despite one of my least favorite bad guys showing up again, uh, this was a really fun issue. Yeah, I felt really similarly. The first note that I have written down, which sounds like damning it with faint praise, but it was, didn't hate it. Like, when I saw the (laughs) cover and saw how prominently Mandrill featured on it, and also the fact that he's holding up a scale with all of the lady defenders on one side and the dude defenders on the other side, and the dude defenders are decidedly heavier, I was like, huh, I don't know about this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not crazy about a bunch of the mandrel shit that's in it. But overall, Mm -hmm. it was a really fun issue. Yeah, it was. I I loved uh, Patsy and the Hulk in this, and and Val. Daredevil was great. Kyle was in it. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, we learned in, I think, the last issue that Ed Hannigan's going to be hanging up his pen in regards to the Defenders with issue 93. And this issue felt like kind of a victory lap. You know, when like a player is about to retire from a sport and like they'll, for their last season, go do a tour of all the stadiums they've been at and have a little ceremony for each. It had that kind of feeling to it. Like we get a bunch of references to plot lines or little tiny story elements that I thought had been just dropped or forgotten about that I was happy to see come back and just get mentioned and, I don't know, played with. It felt like they were having a lot more fun making this comic book than a lot of the previous ones. It was certainly a fun read. I think you're perhaps a more astute observer of the history of these little Easter eggs that you're referencing. I mean, I don't know if I picked up on that stuff. I liked the food jokes. I liked the food jokes, too. Call back to the beans. Mm-hmm. I just mean stuff like. It seems like the comic book had completely forgotten that Nighthawk used to be a burglar. And so, like, you get that referenced in this issue. And Hellcat's Shadow Cloak, which has just not been a thing for a while. And it kept hinting at, like, oh, is there going to be a storyline involving the Shadow Cloak coming up? And then her Shadow Cloak comes back and she starts using it. Or, Mm -hmm. like... The reference to the shocker doing the stock market manipulations when he broke into the SEC way back in the Defenders for a Day storyline. That gets brought up by one of the lawyers. Or like Valkyrie doing jail time. Like just all of those little things. Just like, oh, hey, here's all the stuff I kind of wanted to do something with that I was saving for later, but there's not going to be a later. So I'll just, you know, fold them in a little. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's kind of one of the the fun things about having, I guess, been reading a particular series for such a long time. Like, all that stuff, I just sort of was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But, I, you know, like, no big deal. Just 
calling back some past stuff. But yeah, that's that's true. That's a good point that he was, you know, like you said, folding that stuff in. And I thought it was fun. It is kind of a bummer that it really is like the last few issues of Ed Hannigan's run have been so much fun. And we know that he's not going to be writing it anymore in a couple of issues. Mm. I liked that the gang decides to go to White Castle for breakfast. That was nice. It's like, well, your choices are beans or fast food. I don't know if they had breakfast options there either. They just got hamburgers, right? Almost little square hamburgers. Yeah, I'm almost certain I've brought it up on the show. But it totally reminds me of there was some school assembly that we went to where we had to watch an educational film strip. And the topic of this film strip was there was some kind of a cartoon bird who told you it was really important to eat breakfast, and if you want to eat a hamburger for breakfast, that's fine with him. So maybe the Hulk and Val watched that film strip. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that rings a bell. Uh, Not that I saw it, but that we talked about it on the show. Darn it. It may be one that I invented. I have not found anyone yet who also remembers that. So Maybe you just wanted to hamburger for breakfast one day like you fabricated that so your mom would let you have one and then you know because you're little it seemed real and it stuck it's possible although even as a child the excuse a cartoon bird told me i could didn't hold as much water as you might think well it was it was a cartoon bird from school oh you're right that changes everything (laughs) a teacher made you watch that cartoon bird you're right Presumably, that bird probably had some kind of a higher education degree. Yeah. All right. Hamburgers for breakfast it is. Glad that is settled. And I really enjoyed the callback to the beans and that we see that I had assumed that Dolly Donahue had made all of the beans that the Hulk had bought. But no, she just made two giant punch bowls full of beans. There is still a pantry full of beans and only beans in the house. They effectively have a legume room. Yeah, yeah, Hulk's going to be happy if he ever has to eat there again. Mm-hmm. What did you think of uh, Daredevil in this issue? Oh, man, he did such a good job using his acute senses to figure out how to make a phone call from inside of a bank vault. Yeah, despite the fact that the operator was kind of a dick to him. I like how he worked that out. Look, I'm blind. Help. I feel like that used to be more of a thing before there is the current level of automation and maybe corporate oversight. And honestly, before there was any competition in the phone companies, like the phone company used to be just like there was the phone company. Mm -hmm. And then it got broken up with antitrust laws. But I feel like in the early 80s, before that happened, you did stand a much better chance of having an operator just be a dick to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I felt like they were trying to help him save a buck. I guess. But if somebody calls to you for a service and you're like, you know, you could just look that up. So that was like the... uh... The 1980s equivalent of let me Google that for you. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. So have you ever had an operator be mean to you when you were a kid? Gosh, I, I don't even remember. I did. 
I, re- I remember very vividly, uh, we were skiing and my dad was supposed to meet me at the ski lodge at a certain time. And I didn't have a watch and I couldn't find a clock. And so I called the operator and asked what time it was because my dad had suggested that I do that. And I did that like mm-hmm. one time and they just told me what time it was. And then I did it like 10 minutes later. And the operator was like, I was a little kid at the time. I was like seven or eight. And the operator was just like, I already told you what time it was and hung up on me. (laughs) Which I get that being annoying from her perspective, but I think partly because of that, I did get some satisfaction from seeing Daredevil yell at the operator who is like, that number's in your directory. You can just save money by dialing it directly. Him just yelling, I don't have a directory and I'm blind. Please, it's urgent. Mm -hmm. He absolutely could have left that at, I don't have a directory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because if you don't have the directory, it doesn't matter if you can see or not. Yeah, no, he's he's winning there for sure. Yeah, but I, for the most part, really liked Daredevil in this issue. I keep going back and forth on how competent an attorney Milton Rosenblum is. I think he's not very good. I think he just forgot to answer that question and then they were like hey are you going to answer the question and he's like oh it's um that wasn't worth answering (laughs) i kind of love that yeah but it's like a a legal strategy it doesn't seem (laughs) super effective oh no that judge fucking hates him Mm -hmm. i mean maybe he would do better if they would let him keep a tv on in one corner of the courtroom that's probably why he's off his game doesn't have a show on yeah that seems to be his general work strategy is to watch, like, nature documentaries when he's supposed to be working. Mm-hmm. I think the only reason I have any question in my mind about him not being a terrible attorney is that I must just be falling for what I like to think of as the Patron tequila phenomenon, which is, well, it's the most expensive, so it must be at least pretty good. But it's not. It's bad tequila, and Milt Rosenblum is a terrible attorney. So, of all of the things that happen in this superhero comic book involving Norse mythology and gamma-radiated superheroes, I think maybe the most unrealistic thing that happened was the ease with which Mandrill hailed a taxi cab while looking like the Mandrill. Yeah, and then the reaction that he got was, was pretty special, too. Oh, that he was maybe just on his way to a punk rock costume party? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Was that a thing? That sounds kind of fun. I don't think it was a thing, but <laughs> that's just what the taxi driver could come up with to like deal with that. There's a six-foot-tall humanoid mandrill getting into my cab. Yeah. And maybe that is why she pulled over. She's like, oh, finally. I've been wanting to go to a punk rock costume party forever this guy finally looks like he knows where one might be or like from a distance just because the outfit she thought it was dr strange who's kind of a celebrity yeah maybe but i bet you anything steve is a shitty tipper and word about stuff like that gets out pretty quick in the service industry so if anything i think she'd maybe be less inclined to stop for steve strange also, he's definitely got the cape, but Mandrill's outfit seems like it's changed a couple of times during the course of the issue. 
and is maybe a little less Steve Strangey than it used to be. I, oh, yeah. I think the earlier stuff was like his lounge <laughs> wear. I like that his lounge wear still involves the elaborate Dracula cape. But oh, sure. that other than that, it is, I don't know, I guess a version of the Zardoz slash Vampirella bathing suit, but with slightly more fabric. That is like a ridiculously deep V that he has going on his one-piece swimsuit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's warm where he is. Yeah, apparently yeah. warmer than on the plane a couple panels later, where he is wearing a full pajama suit that has the little sigil of the Nova Corps on it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting stuff. Lounging, drinking a giant goblet of water. Staying hydrated. Oh, you think that's water? Oh, it could be vodka, I guess. But I mean, I think he's got a—he's trying to get his game face on, you know. I guess you're probably right. He's trying to stay sharp. I guess he probably does need to stay hydrated if they're gonna keep hooking that uh, pheromone extracting machine up to him and just milking the shit out of his glands. Yeah. Oh, you know what it is? It's this is the '80s. It's probably Zima. Oh, I don't think they had Zima yet in '80. Zima was, like, a really specific window of, like, early 90s. Oh. Well, he probably invented it. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's probably got some kind of a proto-Zima it's going. It's a proto-Zima. Yep. Yeah. But, yeah, just the way that they phrased, it's a musk extracted from the mandrill himself. I guess extracted doesn't necessarily mean extruded, but that seems like it must be such an un comfortable process to fill a five gallon bucket with your pheromones oh yeah i'm sure that takes a while do you think they taste like vanilla um mantral pheromones yeah is this like a uh beaver anal glands situation oh gosh uh no no i think i think it's like he's like more of like a brute 33 you think he smells that bad (laughs) ouch i don't know a security guard that just had to pull a double so hasn't had a chance to shower and you know yeah just that mix of you know decaying sweat and brute 33 mm. well i guess that would explain why he's driving all the ladies crazy so we talked briefly about the mandrel's introduction and it is one of the most over the top expository pages of dialogue that we've seen in a while like it kind of goes beyond the normal radio drama over explaining things and like is almost a full saturday night live skit impression where the mandrel shows up and immediately introduces himself and says what his deal is Mm mm-hmm It is time for the mandrel to leave Central America and go to New York. There I shall seal my victory and destroy my enemies, Daredevil and the Defenders. It's just like, okay, well, yeah, that's one way to open things off with a mission statement. It totally reminded me of the, uh, well, well, hello, it's me, Jimmy Stewart, from the (laughs) movie Harvey. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's a pretty good Jimmy Stewart. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, I think it's a Saturday Night Live quality Jimmy Stewart, which I didn't mean as a compliment to myself. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to excel at that type of impression where you introduce yourself as you do it. The one that I worked on most recently, which we got to do on the, uh, the What the Duck 
a podcast most foul but with a w because he's a duck that's the full name of the show uh, mm-hmm. tell me if you can figure out who this is i'm a plastic stork eat a fucking pickle that's uh that sounds uh, like the uh the plastic stork who they used to sell those pickles got it in one nice i'm a fucking stork eat a pickle of Vlasic. Yeah, I can picture him, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, uh, I've painted you a word picture. That was uh, evocative. Thank you. You know what bit of over-exposition that I really did enjoy was Patsy's conversation with herself when she's like on the way to get her cape back? Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of deal as with Mandrel. It's just like there's really, like, people don't, I feel like, think like that. Like, well, okay. They took all Kyle's shit, but some of my stuff is in there, so now I gotta go get it back, even though I might get in trouble, and I got this retractable claw thing that's gonna allow me to shoot up there and swing in, and <laughs> makes a little joke to herself, jeepers, talk about cat burglars. <laughs> you know, she's having this whole little dialogue. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed that, too. I enjoyed a lot about Patsy in this issue. She was a lot of fun. I think one of my favorite things about her was that once she got the shadow cloak back and was like, oh yeah, it's really neat. I'll explain to myself and the audience how it works and what it does again. But when she's like, and it can also retrieve any weapon from any time. And as if to demonstrate that to herself, she's just like, you know what? I'm going to start carrying around a dagger for no reason. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like the dagger look that she gets going with herself. I love that shadow cloak on her. When she bursts into the courtroom, it reminded me so much because she is wearing that like regal shadow cloak. It reminded me so much of Namor bursting into a courtroom when he's in his like full regal regalia. And by full regal regalia, I do just mean a Speedo and a Dracula cape. But still, it was just super fun. I was super concerned for Patsy when Nighthawk decided to electrocute her. Again. I mean, it worked last time, so I understand the impulse there, but maybe you could try with a lesser degree of electricity and see if it would still work, rather than hook her up to a transformer and have her turn into that fucking monster from the opening of Scooby-Doo when they're trying to hide in a ski lodge. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it looks pretty bad when she gets zapped into a being of pure electricity. Yeah, that's not safe, man. But I am glad that it worked, and I'm glad that it snapped her out of it. Yeah, likewise. I I was troubled by that, but, you know, it worked. Yeah. I was trying to think of, have you been in a situation where somebody just did some really, like, ill-considered move, but it worked out, and you were mad, but they were like, hey, nobody got hurt, or whatever? I couldn't think of one, but I'm sure... There has been situations like that. Given our pure group, it's almost certain that that has happened. I mean, I'm sure that at various points, one or both of us has done that. I remember the, uh, like an opposite example when I was a kid and a mutual friend of ours was uh, swinging around an old, I think it was a motorcycle chain, just like over his head, like do to do. And I was like, Moses, what the hell? You're totally going to hurt somebody. He's like, what? No, I'm not. And then he lost control of the chain, and then it hit me and hurt me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. that shouldn't have elicited that response necessarily. Uh, no, looking back on it, that's comedy gold, but <laughs> at, the, at the moment, it was intensely frustrating. Like when you guys were doing, was it lawn dart catch? I was just going to retrieve the jart. I didn't know he was going to throw another <laughs> one over the hill. 
Okay, but nobody got hurt, and it turned out it was fine. I got a little bit hurt. Oh, you did? I mean, not hospitalized or anything, but I had a pretty good bruise. When you guys were running around holding targets and doing archery practice at each other? Oh, no, that was another kid. Okay. I'm just saying there are a few examples of this that I can think of off the top of my head from your youth specifically. Yeah, well, you know, no harm, no foul. (laughs) Okay, Nighthawk. Ah, ouch. Tough, but fair. (laughs) So, we get a brief retelling of Mandrill's origin in the opening page of this, and... I have kind of mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, I am glad that it doesn't include the overt racism of his initial origin story, but I kind of feel like if you're going to use the character, you do need to address that in some way. How did, how did you feel mm-hmm. about it? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. So is that, so they realized the way they explained it before was not great and tried to fix it i guess so the origin as it explains it here is that he was born with some mandrill features and as such he was not accepted by his parents or any human beings who thought that he was a freak and his dad left him out in the desert to die and that's more or less what his original origin was with the exception of it folded in a bunch of super racist tropes Basically, it was the same origin, except for it really emphasized that because he had simian features, despite being Caucasian, and it's like, whoa, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. But it really leaned heavily on that. It completely conflated being black with having ape-like characteristics, which is incredibly fucked up. And in this version of it, it glosses over that to the point that it may be trying to retcon that out of being part of it. But I feel like if you're going to do that, please just don't use this character anymore. Or do an actual deep dive into what the implications of what the original story were. You know what I mean? I don't want the racist origin story to be perpetuated. But at the same time, if you're going to represent it, I feel like it needs to be addressed in some way instead of just pretending that it never happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like it was a, a redirect. You know, hey, look over here. Yeah. But, I mean, probably, I, I, I'm not a comic historian, but I would guess par for the course for 1980s comics. Those sort of issues weren't, weren't being tackled or revisiting, you know problematic things from earlier issues to you know like oh here's a teachable moment that didn't i don't ever really remember reading stuff like that happening right and for the most part you're still not going to Uh, yeah and honestly i'm not too disappointed that they didn't try to address it at this point because i think they probably would have done a bad job this is 1980 i think marvel a company that had been around in some form or another since the 40s was still a few years away from hiring their first black writer. I feel like if you are going to tackle that topic in depth, it probably should be a black writer doing it because frankly, the white writers at Marvel don't have a great track record with that kind of shit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the closest we've seen is, you know, okay, yeah, racism's bad, but also don't get mad about it because then you're as bad as the racists are. That is... Like, that's kind of been the treatment that we've seen so far in, in these books. Yeah, Marvel, especially during the Bronze Age, was real big on those prototypical South Park politics of, like, well, both sides are wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But specifically in terms of racism, yes, it was almost always brought up in the context of, well, yes, racism's terrible, but what's as bad, if not worse, is being angry at racism. So I'm not disappointed that we don't get another one of those stories. But on the other hand, as recent history has shown, pretending that a racist thing never happened is usually not a great solution. I really liked Dolly Donahue's reaction to seeing Doctor Strange's place and being like, huh, a doctor lives there? (laughs) Yeah. I love Dolly Donahue so much. She's a lot of fun in this issue. She keeps those beans organized. I would love a one-off issue of just her and Wong hanging out and, like, comparing notes. Mm. Yeah, that's true. They're both in the the service business, as it were. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think they could have some uh, important tips for each other. I mean, they both work for kind of self-involved superhero types. And I get the impression that they both take petty revenges where they can. Yeah. You want to talk about the Women's Bank of Saving? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck was up with that? <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> well, Mandrel controls women. So I guess he's got to have a Women's Bank of Saving. <sighs> that was one of the less fun aspects of the book is the extent to which wait wait women can save money and have a bank (laughs) okay i wasn't upset about that (laughs) but yeah the mandrel's character and it, it it is so cringy the extent to which when he appears in a book everybody throws around the adjective female in the same way that I don't know, like if you're reading an L. Ron Hubbard science fiction book, he would use the word space as a prefix for things. Like, the astronaut took out his space lunchbox, and it cost him 15 space dollars to buy it. It's the same thing with this, where it's like every time Mandrill does something, he's just like, my female army will use their woman guns to shoot you with their female rays. (laughs) Watch out for those lady bullets. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's just weird and kind of shitty and reductive in a way. And just the general tone of his powers is, it's just so inherently creepy. And I get that he's a villain, but there is also almost an implied lasciviousness with the way that the book views his powers. Like, ah, it sure is shitty that he's doing these things, but can you imagine? Oh yeah, that's totally, totally part of it. Well, you're ready to get into the minutiae? Yeah, let's uh, jump on in. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you want to tackle first? Gosh, where to start? Why don't we start with sound effects? Okay. There were some doozies in this one. 
So what were your favorite sound effects in this issue? Well, I think I have a clear favorite, and that's on page eight. And it's the sound that it makes when a dagger pierces a hose on a pheromone apparatus. Oh, you mean the... Yeah. Thank you for saying it. I was worried about how to, how to say it because it kind of looks like it says Pwats. But uh, yeah, that's a funny sound. Yep. Pwats. It's a lot of gas. It sure is. Must have taken him a while to extrude all that. Good thing he stayed hydrated. That was up there with my favorites. I was also a big fan of the breaking of a bank ceiling making the noise. I also had that. That is evocative. Indeed. And I don't know exactly what it's evocative of. Like, it just makes it sound like he was just shredding that ceiling. Yeah, I read it as, like, something moving at high speed, the sound of metal shearing, and then uh, glass breaking all at the same time. It's like a combination of that and maybe that bank ceiling had a dial-up modem in it somehow. <laughs> so I liked that. I also liked the badeep tick of Daredevil dialing a phone through an air vent using his billy club. Yeah, that was a heck of an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. A lot of dexterity on that Daredevil fella. Indeed. Any other sound effects? Yeah, I did have one more, and I, I, I don't know how you describe it, but it's like, it's not a onomatopoeia, but when something makes a noise, that's the way that that noise is described, but that it just doesn't really sound right, and it's, a, and it's when the judge on page 11 bangs her gavel, and it makes the noise, bang! Yeah, I, I know what you mean. There are those sound effects that are like barn animal noises. I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. Like, pigs don't actually make the noise oink, oink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's that cultural element to it, too, right? Like, okay, so in America, a gavel goes bang, but, you know, in some other country, it, I don't know, it goes wop, wop, wop. Exactly. Yeah, the beat drop gavel. Very popular in a lot of countries. Well, Corey, I think it's time for our most popular news segment. Battle of the Band Names! So, in last week's Twitter poll, we saw Get the Squid Drunk and their ska covers of sea shanties absolutely trounce the acapella pop punk of Yay Future Boo Past. It was, I believe, 79% to 21%. Holy mackerel. Man, Get the Squid Drunk is turning into a juggernaut. Were you able to find a band name in this that you think might be able to give them some competition? Gosh, I got two contenders. I think one has a much stronger chance than the other. And I'd be, I'm going to be pretty surprised if you don't also have this in your list of choices. Okay, I have two also. I wonder if they are the same. All right. Well, I'll start with what I think is the lesser of the two. Which is a band that's it's definitely hard rock, maybe just exclusively ACDC covers. I'm, I'm not really sure, but it's from page 20, and they're called High Voltage Jolt. High Voltage Jolt, pretty good. I did not have that one. I have my backup choice being, I mean, I think pretty straight ahead metal band called Choosers of the Slain. Ooh. 
which is, I think, pretty good. But, and here's where perhaps there is some overlap in our Venn diagram. I see this band as maybe being, like, industrial stoner goth, maybe. (laughs) You see what I'm getting at? With the dankness of the vault. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't have that, but that is... That is good. I could see them. Yeah, they'll they sound like um sleep <laughs> or like electric wizard or you know that sort of maybe like a sludgier version of Nietzsche Ebb maybe. Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no. I I didn't have that one actually. Oh. My choice for the winner was Punk Rock Costume Party. Oh, I saw that one. I felt like that was maybe a little too on the nose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get it. I don't feel like punk rock ever did the thing where it would like use the name punk rock in the title of the punk rock songs in the way that like ska did. So what this made me think of would be like a like a, a band that's like just, you know, ironic. And um, it reminded me of that Eugene Merman thing when he's got that shirt that says punk rock with the zipper and he's like zipping it and unzipping it <laughs> so you're seeing them as almost like a camp thing like a punk band pretending to be a punk band maybe like made up of the people that would have played punk rockers in 80s movies yep i can see that but uh i i don't know i think i'm leaning towards the sludgier version of nitzer like if <laughs> if something's gonna unseat ska sea shanties maybe <laughs> That's about as opposite as you can get in terms of uh, vibe, right? Yeah, it's like they say, send a cop to catch a thief. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll let you run with that, sure. Yeah, I do like punk rock costume party. And I do think the idea of a punk rock band having punk rock in their name, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, do you remember the movie Back to the Beach? I do not. It was a 1987, I think, parody of 60s beach movies starring Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. I think it's probably best known for having Pee Wee Herman do a cover of the song Surfin' Bird. But on the soundtrack, there was a duet between Fishbone and Annette Funicello doing a song called Jamaican Ska. Oh, no. (laughs) The chorus of it was Ska, Ska, Ska. Do the ska, 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 Jamaican ska. Of course. And that's what punk rock costume party reminds me kind of of. Hmm. Fishbone and Annette Funicello. Yeah. Fishbone did some weird fucking duets. They also did a duet with uh, Curtis Mayfield on the I'm Gonna Get You Sucka soundtrack. Oh, really? Yeah, that one was pretty good. The Annette Funicello one was, in my opinion, not particularly great, but still not the worst nor weirdest duet done for a soundtrack which in my opinion belongs to lou reed and sam moore doing a cover of soul man together for oh, no. the movie soul man <laughs> why why did they let that happen i don't well, i don't know why they let the movie soul man happen frankly which i don't remember that one uh see thomas howell is in blackface for like the whole movie yeah yep 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 Yes, every every aspect of that movie was very ill-conceived, but having a duet with Sam Moore and Lou Reed, it really just highlights how little soul Lou Reed is bringing to that. Yeah, 
Yeah, you gotta. I feel like. I mean, he's produced some pretty awesome music, but you gotta be like really in the mood for it. <laughs> right, and so yeah, juxtaposing his voice to Sam Moore's, hearing Lou Reed say, <laughs> "Are you gonna do it?" Yeah. All right. Okay. Try not to sound like Bob Dylan. That's like I can't do it without being like, "Who am I making fun of?" I'm a soul man. Damn. I had, I guess, along with the rest of that movie, blocked that out. You're a lucky man. Thank you. So we're going with the dankness of the vault? Dankness of the vault. All right. I will put that Twitter poll up. Godspeed, you dankness of the vault. Although... I think Get the Squid Drunk is a pretty good name. It's just, uh, you know, now I'm rooting for the underdog. Yeah, and plus you love industrial sludge music. Well, especially industrial stoner sludge. Well, I think the stoner is implied. What was your favorite panel in this issue? Oh, man. I had three choices. I think my favorite is probably just going for the comedic effect and it's on page three and it's bruce banner saying sorry for the hulk's actions doing the shrug and be like yeah because val and, and patsy are really mad at him that all they have to eat is beans okay from that panel that is also my favorite panel uh, i do have a backup but from his expression i really get the impression that he is not sorry that they have all those beans oh no that's a total sorry not sorry Moment. That's yeah. That's a. I'm sorry I got caught. And also like, well, gosh, it's a, sure is a shame we got to eat all those beans. I mean, I'm not crazy about him either, but hey, we got a lot of beans. He has the expression on his face of like the dude in the '80s sitcom who is just like, oh no, it looks like the travel agent screwed up and got us a room with only one bed. Yeah, yeah, it totally has that look. I don't like this any more than you guys do, but... Yep. So, yeah, the expression on Bruce Banner's face there is so funny. And then he's just like, hey, I, I'm i sorry we have to eat all these beans. This sure is terrible, guys. Absolutely cracked me up. My backup favorite panel is also a Bruce Banner-centric one. I call it Haircut Hulk. Oh, the transformation? Panel? Yeah, there is a mid-transformation shot of Bruce Banner where it is mostly the Hulk's face, but he still has Bruce Banner's kind of generic 80s everyman haircut. And it is just so incongruous looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, disconcerting. Yeah, the idea of the Hulk with a part in his hair, for some reason, I find very unsettling. Yeah, that's a, that's a weird one. We don't often see those mid-transformation panels. No, it looks like he got his hands on some kind of gamma-radiated moose. Oh, the hair product. Yes. Because yes, it's I'm the 80s. Sorry. Right, not the animal. Uh-huh. My backup was, I think I picked it because I just, I don't know. Like, if I was in a bad situation that I would want somebody to stick up for me the way that Val sticks up for Kyle in that courtroom. And it's <laughs> the one where she's shaking her fist and yelling at the judge on page 12. I called it a soft barrister. Uh, what's his name? I don't think we know the the opposing lawyer's name, do we? Yeah, they say it. Oh, yes, Mr. Haverhill. Haverhill, yeah. So she's calling Haverhill uh, names and shaking her fist and gets in big trouble with the judge, but 
Stop it! How can you say such things? Kyle is a wonderful man! You don't know him! Oh, yep. Valkyrie. So. No, he isn't. <laughs> little foreshadowing. She's not going to win Best Defender for saying that. <laughs> Tough but fair. I like that image a lot, too. And she thinks that Kyle is being persecuted for no reason other than spite. And mm-hmm. the fact that he broke a lot of laws. Man, and that's... So getting back to like what I thought about the issue in general, they really lay out like all the stuff that potentially he's done, and it sounds like he's a real shit. Yeah! A gamut ranging from tax fraud to fiscal malfeasance to stock manipulation to contempt of court. Yeah, and that's even glossing over the in his initial career of super burglary. Oh my gosh. And, you know, attempted world destruction at least a few times. Yep. But, I mean, you know, he said he was sorry for that stuff. So, okay. Who did you have as your best defender, and who did you have as your worst offender? Sure, I'll start with the best, and because I think you did it once before, I'm going to go with the uh, non-team clause Okay. choose Daredevil. Absolutely. For a few reasons. One, just the way that he was able to, A, place the emergency call from within the vault, and B, um, castigate the rude phone operator. That was pretty great. <laughs> Also, the fact that he just scared Mandrel off by being persistent. Like Mandrel's <laughs> like, oh, this guy, I better get out of here. <laughs> he's, obvi- he's the weakest out of everybody, but man, he just doesn't give up. I'm leaving. Well, he doesn't say he's the weakest. I believe what he says is, though for Daredevil possesses less power than almost any of the individual defenders. And I feel like... They were so close to putting in the little asterisk there and having the editor's note be Nighthawk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. But yes, I also liked that Mandrill's reaction to Daredevil was, ah, tenacity, no! <laughs> Run away. So I can see where you're coming from on that. I have a slightly different perspective. I had the best defender in this issue being Steve, because... He decides to loan his friend, Bruce Banner, a purple suit with, I'm sure at this point, no expectation of ever seeing it again. (sighs) Like, Bruce Banner comes to his house and is like, hey, I need to go to court. Can I borrow a suit? And Steve's like, all right, just go to the closet. I, I keep some spare purple ones there just in case. Have at them, Bruce. Yeah, you know what, I'm sure he does, but that doesn't buy him credit with me. Those are just, like, objects that don't have a lot of worth to him. That's like his whole closet of banner clothes. It's a cost of doing business. I guess. Are you suggesting that maybe they are perhaps tearaway suits? Like, they're made of, like, crepe paper? The kind you get at, like, the Asian superstore that you're supposed to set on fire for the Hungry Ghost Festival? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little more substantial, but he knows that suit is not going to last long. Right. Which I think makes it more noble that he's just like, okay, here you go, pal. I I think somebody in the Marvel Universe should just invest in purchasing Bruce Banner a Unstable Molecules purple suit. Like, Mm. he's friends with all these people who have seemingly limitless supplies of Unstable Molecule attire. And then we would get to see the Hulk rampaging around 
wearing a purple suit, which I think would be pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I like it. Nevertheless, as a backup, I had Hellcat. I thought she did a really good job. I think she was really fun. I'm not going to hold it against her that she ended up getting brainwashed. She didn't know what was in that bucket of pheromones when she threw a dagger at it. And I liked that she was just like, hey, free dagger. Neat. I'm going to keep it. Mm -hmm. I thought she did a pretty great job, too. But I decided to go with Steve as my best offender. Conversely, I had Daredevil as the worst offender. Really? Because when he is in prison or in the, the bank vault, and he has this ingenious way to get out of it by accessing the telephone, calling the operator, he decides to call Kyle to come rescue him. We've seen this with the Wasp before. Why would you call Kyle in that situation? Specifically, why would Daredevil call the one person who he knows, because he is his lawyer, is busy at a court date at that very moment? Like, he doesn't even know Kyle's number. He has to call the courthouse to get the number of the courthouse. This is 1980. He has phone numbers memorized. He could have called virtually any other superhero in New York right then. And he didn't. He decided to call the one guy who is A, incompetent, and B, busy. He calls Kyle. Well, shit. He didn't even need to call a superhero. He could have called Foggy Nelson. He could have called anybody to just be like, hey, can you go talk to the bank manager and get him to let me out? Well, it's too bad we get rid of the sucker category because if any, you know, smart person doing a silly thing to move the plot along deal happens, it is definitely that in this comic. Yeah. So, good point, and funny enough, we do have Oppositesville in our best and worst, because I had Steve as my worst defender. What? Because where the hell is he in all the midst of all the stuff that his friends are embroiled in, being as powerful as he is? He should be helping out, or at the very least, going to um, lend the same level of moral support that, uh, that Patsy and, and Val intended to during this trial. And he's just... Hanging out with his closet full of tearaway suits. <laughs> Doing his own thing while his friends are off risking their lives. And I'm sick of it. Okay, he didn't know that they were risking their lives. From his perspective, maybe he's just sick of Kyle's bullshit. He still wants to be there and be supportive for the Hulk and Valkyrie and Hellcat. But he's tired of Kyle's bullshit and he doesn't want to go to his court date. I'm not going to hold him responsible for that. I don't think that's the case. No? I think he and Kyle are... <laughs> More closely, you know, I think they, uh, we've talked about that before, how they kind of think each other are pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. We have talked about that, and I can see them getting along pretty well. But you will notice that he is fine with having any of the other defenders stay with him. But as soon as Kyle is homeless, then he's like, you guys need to find a new place to stay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is true. Nonetheless, he's nigh omniscient from time to time when things are going sideways in, in the Marvel Universe. So I think he should have been there to help his friends fight Mandrill. I think that is probably a reasonable stance to take, although I guess we just put different values on purple suit rentals. I guess so. That's really what it all comes down to. <laughs> ah, that's fun. We haven't had an opposite uh, flipped one like that in a while. Sartorially speaking, and I, a lot of this has come up already, but which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy in this issue? Oh, man, I'm pretty sure it's a coloration error, and I don't know if your copy has it, but on page 11 is 
Rosenblum is opening that gate thing in the court, we see his waistcoat or vest revealed. And in my copy, it is like hot pink or fuchsia. Yeah, in my copy, it looks more just like a muted red, but my copy is somewhat faded. So if you're looking at like a recolored issue, yours is probably the original color or closer to it. Yeah, I just I got a kick out of it because it's like he's wearing this kind of drab, you know, 70s, like rust colored suit with a white shirt and a navy tie and black shoes. And then like there's this little pop of color. You could just see him getting dressed in the morning. Be like, this is for me. I think that's a good call. Yeah, we talked a little bit about Patsy's shadow cloak and what a dope look that is, especially for me when she busts into the courtroom. It just I got big Namor vibes from it, which I appreciated. I like Valkyrie's court outfit which i don't know it reminded me more than anything else that like oh yeah wasn't she going to college because it's a very like college kid home for thanksgiving outfit she's like Mm -hmm. wearing a nice skirt and a blue sweater and she's got her hair in little braids and i think it's a solid look for her yep we discussed mandrell's outfit and the varying degrees of dr strange slash zardoz cosplay he's doing which are certainly interesting i also like kyle's court outfit which is a bright green suit with a gold colored shirt and tie under it Mm -hmm. very like leprechaun going to prom outfit (laughs) and in my copy there's yeah like one is gold colored and one is more just like orangey so it's like a gold and orange and green all together yeah definitely a leprechaun going to prom look The other element of fashion in this that really struck me, I think may have tied into why I chose Daredevil as my worst offender, because on page 19, we see that he is doing all of his crime fighting and acrobatic stuff in what appears to be a cowboy boot with a pretty significant heel on it. On page 19. <laughs> I, I, you know, that's so funny. I was taken aback by that also. I was like, first of all, <laughs> like, he has to do all this gymnastic type stuff. Like, and like, why is he wearing tall shoes? Yeah. Well, and like, especially if they are cowboy boots like they look, he's not going to be able to get a good grip on anything. It's just wildly impractical. I mean, impressive, but still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's vanity a step too far. Like, well, with these, I'm six foot tall. <laughs> you know, that's probably why he's wearing them. I think you're probably right. Maybe it's part of his disguise. Hmm. No, it's Daredevil. He has never been very good at maintaining a disguise. No. He's no, not going to put that kind, of, uh, that kind of thought into it. Did you note the taxi driver on page 22? I did. I like her little beret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got a little red... Beret. I don't know. Kind of did make me wonder if she was uh, one of those guardian angels. I don't know if that was going on at the time. Oh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I can totally see that. She reminded me of somebody very specifically, too. There were a couple of issues of the comic book What If that featured Conan the Barbarian living in modern times and becoming a pimp with a pet leopard. There was a cab driver character in that that it really reminded me of. Oh, geez. It's a really weird issue. I I will loan it to you if you would like to read it. That is strange and okay. But yes, I also noticed that cab driver's outfit. I thought it was a pretty good outfit. 
Well, Corey, I gotta ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Behold or be gone. In this specific hypothetical scenario, you are employed as a housekeeper. Like uh, Alice from the Brady Bunch style housekeeper. Okay. Now, with that as a given, would you want to be employed by the Defenders? Do you want Dolly Donahue's job if you have to be a housekeeper? Oof. No. No? No, because, well, like, cool to get to, you know, see heroes interact, but... Uh-huh. You got Kyle staying with you, and he's just going to complain the whole fucking time about how weird New Jersey is. That's true, but I think there is an upside to having Kyle be one of your employers. We've seen, first of all, that Dolly doesn't take any shit from him, and he does as he's told for the most part, which Mm. is nice. But I think also, Kyle has been a billionaire his entire life. I think you could probably get away with a lot of shit like, Hey, I uh, need to go to the store to get a pint of milk. You got uh, 75 bucks? (laughs) So you would be a housekeeper for the Defenders just so you could could fool Kyle out out of some of his money? Well, not just so that I could do that, but if I have to be employed as a housekeeper, I want it to be for people that I can easily bamboozle. And I think that that is a household that is rife with the possibility for grift. Really? Like, okay, Valkyrie doesn't understand the ways of the world either in a different way than Kyle. But like, you know, you can get away with just like, all right, I need to go grocery shopping. That's going to take me the next seven hours. And they just be like, yeah, it sounds about right. Okay, have fun. Mm -hmm. We see that the Hulk isn't going to give you any static because he's Bruce Banner. He doesn't want to make any waves. And then when he's the Hulk, he's not going to understand really what's going on. You get all the beans you can eat, for sure. And really, the only person who I think would be, like, able to call you on your shit would be Patsy. And I feel like she wouldn't, because she would think it was funny. Mm. Well, sounds like you got the the workings for a pretty decent sitcom there. Yeah, I can see that. I think part of the difference comes down to you were more interested in being a good employee than I am. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's kind of always been the case. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is. It definitely seems more fun not to be. Yeah, it usually is. I was talking with a friend of mine a little while ago about the respective jobs that we had at the time, and she was saying, like, yeah, I just, I feel like when I'm at work and I don't have anything to do, I feel like I'm, like, stealing from my employer. And I was like, yeah, me too! <laughs> And she was like, oh, no, I feel bad about it. I was like, oh, yeah, huh, weird. Uh, Anyway, if you're looking to hire. (laughs) (laughs) So I I am going to give working as the Defender's housekeeper a behold. All right, we got a split vote. One behold, one be gone. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? So we touched on this briefly before, this idea of having somebody that's really in your corner, as Val was for Kyle when 
the lawyers are saying all these mean things about him. And so she goes off on this diatribe that I felt pretty amused by, where she says she's shaking her fist and standing up and shouting, Enough! I will not tolerate this farce any longer! Your foolish society has done nothing but persecute one of its very best members! And now, a soft, fat barrister wishes to incarcerate him for no reason other than mean spite. Yeah, could have done without her body shaming the barrister, but uh, an impassioned speech nonetheless. Yeah, and he's not drawn particularly portly either, I think, just with her uh, 1980s arsenal of of insults. That was (laughs) what she was working with, but I felt weird about saying it because of that, but otherwise, a pretty good speech. It's interesting you bring up the lawyer's appearance, because it's very similar to Kyle's lawyer's appearance. And I'm honestly wondering if in the last panel, that's supposed to be Kyle's lawyer, but it got colored in and inked as though it was the prosecuting attorney. Mm, with the little like things falling on his head? Yeah, because it's Kyle's lawyer that makes the objection, and then the judge overrules it, and we see a reaction shot of the person looking surprised while a tiny piece of ceiling falls on their head. It seems like, comedically, that should be Kyle's lawyer. That should be Rosenblum. But instead, it's Haverhill. Did you get that impression or not? Uh, it looks like it's drawn pretty clearly to be Haverhill. They're both mustached men wearing suits and glasses. Yeah, that's true, but Rosenblum has a like a receding hairline and Haverhill has bushier hair. Yeah, I guess you're right. Comedically, though, like if you just got your objection overruled and then adding insult to injury, you got the piece of ceiling falling on your head. That would have made more sense. Yeah, maybe it was like a looser pencil. I don't know what the breakdown of art is between Pablo Marcos and Don Perlin in this, but it might make sense if it was a miscommunication between the two of them. Mm -hmm. My favorite words in this issue are predictably, well, if it must be beans. Which is Valkyrie very dramatically resigning herself to eat beans for breakfast. (laughs) It just really cracked me up. And, you know, they don't end up doing that. They end up going to uh, White Castle, or White Turret, as it is called in this book, because I think Patsy is the only one who doesn't want to eat beans at that point, because I think both Valkyrie and Bruce Banner are like, I don't, I don't want to come out and say that I'm stoked about eating beans for breakfast, but I think they're both pretty into it. And Hellcat's just like, oh, if neither one of you wants to eat beans, we can, I got some money, we can buy food with it. And so they go to White Castle. But I really did kind of get the impression that both of them were like, well, if we have to eat beans, okay. Wink, wink. Yeah. Did you watch Arrested Development? I did. Like when George Michael is talking to maybe and is just like hey you know what it really freak our parents out if they came home and we were making out boy that would sure show them (laughs) i feel like that's where the val and bruce banner are at with the whole eating cans of beans and for breakfast thing good analogy thank you now Corey, we both know that the hulk rules but in this issue what were the hulk's rules They were uh, less philosophical in this one than I feel like they often are, and it was just kind of a straight ahead. Hey, if you know what you like, and you see a good deal on it, and you can afford it, stock up. (laughs) That's a lot of beans. Lots of beans. Fair enough. So I got two possible takeaways in this. Uh, One is I think that the Hulk might have learned from a cartoon bird 
<laughs> want to have a hamburger for breakfast, have a hamburger for breakfast. But I think the real takeaway that he has from this issue is never loan anything out that you will resent not being returned. Like, mm. that's a lesson that I learned a while ago. I used mm-hmm. to be like, oh man, I'm never going to get that book back from that person. And I would kind of let it fester and stew. And now when I loan something, it's with the expectation that I will not get it back. And if I do, great. But if I don't, that's fine. And the Hulk learned that from Steve saying, Yes, I will happily loan you this purple suit, Bruce Banner. Just a (laughs) sigh. Bring it back when you're done, I guess. (laughs) He knows he's not getting that purple suit back. And he's okay mm-hmm. with it. And that's the Hulk's rule. Heartwarming. Mm. Well, Corey, I have one further question I must ask you. Okay, shoot. In the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, December, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So it's definitely come up before in the, in the Wong doings section about not only his deep interest in science and technology and also his good relationships that he's built with some of the existing political power structure. And there was a a nexus between the two where Wong, having come up with friends who were really interested in computer programming and creating programs for computers as that was taking off in the 80s, thought, gosh, it's just a shame that these people can essentially put all this work into something and somebody could just steal their ideas and profit from it. So through some back-channel influencing with his political connections, he did directly contribute to uh, this December 12th, 1980 amendment to copyright law, finally allowing computer programs to be something that was recognized under U.S. copyright law. Hmm. And throughout the midst of all that, while Wong was doing the research and making the contacts with uh, the political people, Steve had gotten really into reading catalogs from uh, Apple producers, like The Fruit. And would just constantly go on about these different cultivars and shop for them and like was doing tastings and everything and was just constantly telling Wong about all of his discoveries, which is getting a little bit old. And so in the midst of Wong studying, there was one that Steve was really interested in that was that came out in 1980 called The Gold Rush, which is from Indiana. And it's like, oh, Wong, this has a complex spicy flavor with high acidity and sweetness. Did you know that acidity moderates in cold storage with exceptional quality after two to three months? And was just blathering on about it. And Wong kind of tuned him out, but he got into this weird, like, hypnotic state where he just kept thinking, Apple, Gold Rush, software, what does it all mean? And to try and get that out of his head, he was, you know, absentmindedly flipping through the Financial Times and saw that a little company by the name of Apple was making its initial public offering on that same day that the copyright law was amended, the 12th. So he cobbled together all of his savings and uh, thinking this can't be a coincidence, bought all the Apple stock that he could afford, and needless to say, worked out pretty well. 38 years later, it would be the first U.S. company valued at over one trillion bucks. Wow. Sounds like that Apple software was a real gold rush. Good for Wong. Yeah. Well, stumbling into that financial windfall may have been one thing that Wong was up to that month, but it wasn't the only thing. The other thing that Wong was up to was helping Steve with a hypothetical casting situation. You see, a couple of years ago, they had made a TV movie 
out of Doctor Strange's life, and Steve wasn't particularly thrilled with the fellow Peter Hooten, who had played him in the film. And so ever since then, he had been like, well, if there's ever a theatrical release, which I'm sure is inevitable, uh, I would like to get a different actor to portray me in it. But who, who could possibly carry off the kind of gravitas who has the same sort of aesthetic spectacularness that I possess? Oh, Wong, you must help me with this. And Wong, you know, he's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for an actor who kind of reminds me of you. And as you had mentioned last month, the album 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton had just come out. So when the movie opened a month later, Wong and Steve decided to go see it. And Wong was just like, oh, I got it. Dude, Dabney Coleman, he would be a great Stephen Strange. <laughs> And Steve was like, no, no, no. He's more of a J. Jonah Jameson type. And Wong was like, oh, shit, you're actually right. Dabney Coleman would be an amazing J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, gosh, I still think he could have pulled off a of Steve, but okay. So they went home that night. It happened to be December 11th, and they turned on the TV. And almost simultaneously, they saw the program that was on, and they were like, that mustache, that face, that voice, it's perfect. And then they looked at each other, and they were like, really? They couldn't believe they agreed, and it turned out they didn't. They were watching Magnum P.I., and Steve was like, Tom Selleck, that's the actor who must portray me. He's perfect. Look at that full bushy mustache. And... Wong was like, Higgins, <laughs> the actor playing Higgins, John Hillerman. He's got that creepy little thin mustache and that pretentious voice and tone. It's perfect. But for that one brief moment, they thought they were in agreement and it was a pretty nice minute for them. Nice. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing. In December of 1980, watching 9 to 5 and Magnum P.I. and disagreeing about Steve's self-assessment. Pretty good. Seriously, wouldn't Dabney Coleman be a great J. Jonah Jameson, though? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I'd also like to see him as Doctor Strange, but... Yeah. Yeah, he could pull it off. I couldn't remember the name of the actor that played Higgins. He had those funny little, like, sock garter things too mm -hmm. yeah i had to look it up he actually sadly passed away a couple of years ago oh yeah i will always fondly remember tom Selleck saying incredulously higgins higgins <laughs> <laughs> you went full yoda with that i did yeah maybe there was distortion from the uh the Google Hangouts call, but it sounded like you were like, Higgins! Oh, maybe I did. My accent work isn't... <laughs> a little secret isn't the best. Mm, judge me by my Ferrari, you do. <laughs> well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us as we talked about this comic book. We will be back next week when we will finally find out what Aqualad has been doing with this whole hybrid situation. 
Doesn't come up in the regular Teen Titans series, but I think next week is going to be a good time for us to finally take a look at Teen Titans Spotlight on number 10, which finally shows us how Aqualad escapes from the Freshmaker's clutches. Oh, thank God. I'm looking forward to that. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk some more Defenders. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you want to try to track us down on the social medias, you probably can. We are not hard to find. Just uh, hack into your server and look up the IP address for tightenupthedefense.exe. I don't think any of that's how computers work, is it? They're all computer words, though. You're doing good. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just, uh, you know, translated into basica. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. That was, a, that was a computer word. Basic. Oh, it wasn't basica? Uh-uh. Oh, I was probably doing the Italian version when I was hey. I used to do all of uh-huh. my programming in Italian. Just made it more of a challenge for me, kind of like Daredevil always fights crime in cowboy boots. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, use your search engine and look up our name and we'll be on the, like, Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and uh, Instagram, etc. And uh, you can find us there. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look. And that is inside your heart. We'll be in there. But before we go in there, I'm going to take off our cowboy boots because we don't want to scuff up your floors. What are you going to be doing in their heart, Corey? I don't know. Maybe uh, watching 9 to 5? Oh, that's a good time. I think that'll be good for everybody. 9 to 5 should always be playing inside your heart. It's a good movie. Because mm-hmm. you know who's the best? Hmm. Jane Fonda. Oh, yeah. You know who else is the best? Hmm. Lily Tomlin. You know who else is the best? I have a guess. Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Dolly Parton. I know that's not how superlatives usually work, but they are all the best. It can be a tie. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess technically it can't, but... Yeah. Oh, gosh. I would hate to have to choose. I think I would probably still go Dolly Parton as the best of the best. But Lily Tomlin, how do you vote against her? Oof. I'm not doing it. Nah, don't do it. I don't like these best things. Yeah, you know what? The cast of 9 to 5 is the best. Where in your heart... Not picking the single best of anything. Yeah. Except maybe Dabney Coleman would be the best J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, although mm. although uh, J.K. Simmons was really good. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so we're not choosing the best of anything. <laughs> Told you. But you know what? Ex- well, one exception, mm. you listeners are the best. Oh, that is true. Yeah. If you would like to support the show financially, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do and you decide to be a supporter of the show, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus content that is exclusive for our donors. You get the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. 
That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And there's also a whole bunch of bonus video content up there of reviews of classic comic books and some other bonus podcasts that we've recorded over the years. So donors, as I said, get exclusive access to that. But there's another reason to donate and a more important one from my perspective. It lets us know that you really appreciate the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. And uh, it just means a heck of a lot to me. And uh, thank you so much for that. It's the only job I've ever been any goddamn good at. You're not stealing from yourself either. Eh, a little, but I'll never catch on. <laughs> if you would like to support the show in a non-financial way, you can do so by leaving us a review in a place that a review can be left. What are some of those places? Oh, you know, the side of a subway train? can carve it in invisible runes onto an ancient ring of power. Jeez, man, that's asking a lot. Yeah, well, you know what might be an easier thing to do? Just go to whatever podcast listening device you're using right now to listen to the show and go to the Tighten Up the Defense section of said podcatcher and type in Tighten Up the Defense. Their show is the best. Well, let's not get into that whole thing. I mean, I'm not going to carve a review in invisible runes on the side of a ring or anything, but it's pretty good. And by pretty good, I mean pretty good. Five stars. <laughs> so, yes, uh, that that's one thing you can do, and golly, I sure would appreciate it. So, yeah, we will see you next week, and until then... By Rosenblum's hot pink waistcoat. Um, shit. That was as far as I got. No, that's good. Pwats! Ooh. <laughs> Bang. Bye! Bye! And they know it! know how to Jamaica ska? Jamaica what? Yeah, sure, Annette. It's a required course at our college. <laughs> well, do you know how to Jamaica ska? Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh.